Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Let's pray together briefly. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. And Father, we pray that your gospel come this morning, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we want to look at Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, through verse 18. Our focus this morning is this. We are to work out... We are to work out our salvation in order to be authentic and resolute in our faith for the progress of the gospel. The joy of the saints and the glory of God. We are to work out our salvation in order to be authentic and resolute in our faith for the progress of the gospel, for the joy of the saints, and for the glory of God. Look with me in Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 12. Paul says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, Paul says, I will have reason to glory for I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. According to the text today, we are to work out our salvation in order to be authentic and resolute in our faith for the progress of the gospel, for the joy of the saints, and for the glory of God. However, the pattern of today's society does not align with the text in which we find ourselves this morning. The pattern of today's society is not one of endurance or longevity or faithfulness. We are encouraged to live the American dream and to do whatever it takes to obtain it. The pursuit of money has replaced the development of relationships. Speed, busyness, and appearance have replaced Diligence, care, and trustworthiness. We know little of toil and labor. And the thought of such words surely cannot be equated with joy. Yet, today's text points us to live joyfully, to joyfully toil for the glory of God. Paul's thought process for today's text stretches back into chapter 1, verse 27. 
where Paul begins to list all these imperatives for us. Philippians 1.27 says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, that I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. This begins the string of imperatives that we looked at last week. These weren't just phrases that we were to meditate on, but they are to be obeyed. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul says, make my joy complete. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Look out for the interest of others. Have the humble attitude of Christ in yourselves. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. The final command is found in today's text. To do all things without grumbling or disputing. But sandwiched in between all these commands is the glorious picture of the condescension and exaltation of Jesus Christ for the glory of God the Father. So Paul carries several important thoughts into verse 12 today that we've been studying in Philippians. That the conduct of the Philippians is of great concern to Paul. Because as the conduct of the Philippians goes, so the gospel goes in the city of Philippi. And Paul's carrying into verse 12 the example of Christ's obedience. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So as we read verse 12 again together in just a minute, our minds, like the minds of the Philippians, should be thinking about the obedience of Christ to His Father. But also carrying into verse 12 is the thought that Paul has communicated to the Philippians in the first chapter, especially verse 29. That they were not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for the sake of God. Paul, like the Philippians, was they were suffering for the sake of the gospel. So Paul writes to the church in Philippi to encourage them to work out their salvation in order to be authentic and resolute in their faith for the progress of the gospel and for the joy of the saints and for the glory of God. So look with me in verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Note Paul's love for the Philippians again in verse 12, and how that love is his motivation for them to obey. If you've been with us the weeks prior to today, then you would have seen as we've walked through the book of Philippians this resounding drumbeat of Paul's love for the people of Philippi, the saints there. It's evidenced again today in verse 12 when he calls them my beloved. He expresses his love again because he intends for them to heed his commands. He wants them to obey. Not just while he's present, but now much more in his absence. And it's true. We are motivated 
to obey through love. For those who have children, and maybe you can remember back to when you were a child, that we, are, we were motivated to obey our parents when we knew that they were demonstrating love to us. If I knew my mom and dad loved me, I was more likely to obey, right? Well, the same is true for our children. And that's the way that Paul addresses the church in Philippi. They're more likely to obey us if they know that we love them. But there's a greater motivation than Paul's love for the Philippians. The greater motivation is the example of Christ's obedience to the Father that we just read about in Philippians chapter 2, 5-11. But what exactly does Paul want the Philippians to obey? They have the love of Paul encouraging them to obey. They have the example of Christ's obedience to the Father encouraging them to obey. But what is it that Paul intends for them to obey? The obeying that the Philippians are asked to do is working out their salvation. What does it mean to work out your salvation? Across the board, scholars and commentators would agree that this working out of salvation is our being made more like Christ. As we work out our salvation, as we work out our salvation, we are being sanctified. So when we see that phrase, work out your salvation, the word that we automatically connect with that is sanctification or being sanctified. Listen to the text carefully. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Here's the imperative. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, there's three things that I want us to look at this morning that I think we're going to see in the text related to sanctification. One, the author of sanctification. This morning, I want us to see from the text who the author of sanctification is. Secondly, I want us to see the marks of sanctification. What are the marks of sanctification? And then the last will be the results of sanctification. So let's look first at the author of sanctification. If we had just read verse 12 by itself, it sounds very much like we, as believers, are to do the working out of our salvation. It sounds as though our sanctification is entirely up to us. Listen to verse 12 again, by itself, and see how one could come to this conclusion if that's the only verse they read. But now, much more in my absence, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But as we read the broader context, we get a bigger picture. And it appears that God is the one who does the sanctifying in us. Look with me in verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, according to His good pleasure. For it is God who is at work in you. So, what is the believer's role in sanctification? What is God's role in sanctification? Or, to say it another way, is it God or me who sanctifies? Well, let's look at the two phrases that will help us answer these questions. The first is to us. 
work out your salvation with fear and trembling. To work out means to accomplish something, to carry out what has been granted us in verse 28 of chapter 1, our salvation. Salvation is not only something that we receive, though it's very much that, but also, listen to me, something that we do. Now allow allow me to explain. This text is about how saved people live out their salvation. It means that we must continue in obedience to Christ. As Christ worked out His obedience to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. But listen to the remainder of verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does with fear and trembling mean? What do we mean by work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Well, we find these words elsewhere in Paul's writings, specifically in the first letter of Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3 says this, Paul speaking to the church in Corinth, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So we learn from the Corinthian reference that it's related to our, our weakness. How are we, as weak as we are, to work out our salvation? This fear and trembling denotes a sense of need and helplessness to carry out the command that Paul has given to us in Philippians chapter 2. I think it's important to note that even God's gracious work of sanctification causes a healthy fear in us. Is sanctification, God's sanctifying of us, not a good thing? Is it not a gracious work of God? And yet, even in the gracious works of God, there should be a fear aspect that's healthy and right. Well, following the exaltation of Christ in Philippians 2, 5-11, and preceding the reality that we're about to read in verse 13... We understand the meaning of verse 12. It is God who is at work in us. It is God who empowers us to carry out our salvation. We are to work out our salvation, but we are able to do so precisely because God is working out our salvation in us. Paul wasn't trying to get bogged down in a theological defense of sanctification here, but rather he was seeking to encourage the Philippians that God is on the side of His people, working on their behalf for His good pleasure and for their joy and for their good. Therefore, the power to obey God comes from God. But God goes beyond just empowering us to obey. He also makes us willing to obey. Look with me in Philippians 2.13. For it is God who is at work in you. That means He's giving us the power to obey Him. Both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. This truth that God is making us willing to obey Him is so encouraging to us as believers. Aren't you glad to know that when God calls us to obey imperatives in Scripture, these commands like we see littered throughout the second half of Philippians chapter 1 and the first half of Philippians chapter 2, that string of commands that we read earlier, that when God calls us to obey those commands, that He empowers us 
with the ability to obey them. We can't in and of ourselves. That's why Paul says, I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling. Because we're in need of God. But the good news is, God is there to give us the uh, strength and ability to obey Him. But just the power to obey is not enough. Something has to happen. The power to obey will, will reap these outward results. But what he says in Philippians 2.13 is both to will and to work, which means he's changing our will. He's conforming our will inwardly. God is transforming us. We're not simply obeying a bunch of rules, but our entire will is being conformed to God by God. Familiar verses that describe this inner working is in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Many of you could probably quote them. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is. Inwardly, that you may approve what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. Our will is conformed to God's will through sanctification. It's what, that's what's going on in sanctification. As we're being sanctified, our will is being transformed to God's will. It's being conformed. It's being shaped. It's being molded. The final phrase of verse 13 says this, according to His good pleasure. It gives us a glimpse of God seeking to glorify Himself. God glorifying God through the working out of salvation in the saints. That our will is being conformed to obey Him for His glory. Sanctification is different than righteousness that's been imputed to us sanctification is not imputed to us as righteousness is but it must be carried out it must be exercised in our lives sanctification affects the entirety of man it's not merely carried out in outward actions but is at work in our will including our emotions and affections when we're being sanctified the whole man is being made new the whole man is being made like christ Sanctification is the progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and more like Christ in our actual lives. But it all begins with God through Christ, by His Holy Spirit. God is the author of our sanctification through the work of the Holy Spirit, but we actively unite with God to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. It is through the divine love of Christ. What do you mean the divine love of Christ? I mean his incarnation. I mean his humiliation. I mean his death. I mean his resurrection. I mean his exaltation. That's the divine love of Christ that Paul urges us to work out our salvation in light of. Yes, we must obey the command to work out our salvation. 
But it is God who is the author of this obedience through the person and work of Jesus. It is impossible to work out salvation if you're not saved. It is impossible to work out salvation if Christ is not Lord of your life. It is impossible to work out salvation if Christ is not the means by which we do so. What does this working out of salvation look like in the life of the believer? Well, we established that God is the author of sanctification, but I want us to see what the marks of sanctification are. Through sanctification, or let me, let me say it, though sanctification is an inward transformation of our will to that of God, certain marks must accompany our sanctification. If sanctification is really taking place, then there's got to be identifiable marks of this sanctification. So let's continue in the text. He says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. There's another one of those imperatives. And I believe that this imperative, Paul is spelling out for us how we must obey, how we must work out our salvation. The word do points to our role in sanctification again. We can't get around that we are responsible for our sanctification. Nor can we ignore that God is the author of it. We must be obedient to be sanctified. We must, according to Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or complaining. God's word really boxes us in sometimes. Have you noticed that? That sometimes we, we just get boxed in. We can't get around God's word. We try. We're looking for a loophole. We're looking for a way around or under or over or through. But it just doesn't work that way. Did you hear the word all in verse 14? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That means that we must do all things, everything, without exception, without grumbling or disputing. Isn't it difficult when we're confronted with God's word, when we look at it word by word like this? It's one of the privileges, it's one of the joys, it's one of the reasons that we preach through books of the Bible like Philippians. Because we have to get confronted with verses like 2.14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. What about when the boss asks us to do something that is needless? There's really no point. Why, why should I have to do this? Or if we're asked to do something in a time-consuming way or a, a less efficient way, are we to obey? I mentioned it last week. It just seems always like it's one of the most applicable ways to apply God's word. But what about when we're required to serve our spouse after a long day? Can we at least grumble and complain a little bit when we do that? I mean, let's be honest. 
The reality is, if we were all to tell the most difficult circumstances and situations that we're confronted with right now, some would be worse than others in this room. But the reality is, some of us would think, I have a real reason to complain because they've got it a lot better than me. What about our circumstances? What about the difficulties that we've been dealt with or we've been dealt in this life? Is it a right to complain, to grumble, to dispute then? Maybe there's some children or students that are with us this morning. What about when mom and dad ask you to do something? And you're in the middle of doing something that you really enjoy. Do we have to obey this command to to do it without grumbling or complaining? If we are to honor God and to prove that we have truly been saved, then our will, which is conformed to God's will, will work out our salvation by doing all things without grumbling or complaining. I would suggest to you that few sins are so ugly to God as the sin of complaining. One of the primary reasons that I believe that so many non-believers are unwilling to attend church is that when they go to church or when they've been to church, They found those who were complaining. That may also be one of the primary reasons that so many non-believers do attend church. Because they're allowed to help shape the church according to their complaints. Well, my children would like a Bible lesson that's a little more fun. A little more entertaining. And then it becomes, my child would like more games and less Bible I honestly watched in horror one day as I viewed a television commercial for one of the fastest growing churches in the state of Arkansas. The commercial, it broadcasts very proudly that their children's ministry, children's ministry didn't, it said, it will not bore your children because we do not spend too much time in the Bible. That was on their advertising commercial broadcast over television. Frankly, I think the church at large does much to feed this complaining attitude by continuing to propagate this self-esteem, self-fulfillment garbage that feeds the same discontent. Isn't that what complaining is? Doesn't complaining arise from somebody who's discontent with something? What are we discontent with? The way... Our church does music or the way that our service is ordered or the way that the chairs are set out or the way that small groups are formed or I mean, what's the complaint? What are our complaints and who are they really aimed at? Are they aimed at others in the church? Are they aimed at the pastors? Well, you may think that that's who they're aimed at, but ultimately All our complaints are complaints against God. Because He is sovereign over all. And has therefore placed us, placed you, in the situation or circumstances that you are complaining about. Was this not 
the case from the very beginning? Did not Adam have the audacity to say to God when God confronted him over his sin? Well, it's this woman that you gave me that did this. Did Adam not try to say to God, this would have never happened if you wouldn't have given me this woman? He was complaining to God about God over his own sin. Is this not the case in the Old Testament account of the Exodus? Listen. Exodus chapter 16. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord. For he hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. See, they were fussing at Moses because they didn't like their circumstances. But Moses never took it as a complaint against himself, but as a complaint against God who was providing for them. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Verse 9 of chapter 16. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. Let's continue into verse 10. And it came about, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation, to the sons of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness. So they looked ahead at the wilderness that was before them. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Here's the very glory of God before them. And then listen to the next verse. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them saying, at twilight you shall eat meat. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. You think that would have ended it, right? Well, listen to this. And again in Exodus chapter 17. Beginning in verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin. Excuse me. From the wilderness of sin. According to the command of the Lord. So they were doing this because God had commanded them to. And they camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. Does that not sound like disputing? And said... Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for their water. And there, excuse me, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. And take in your hand your staff, which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb. And you shall strike the rock. And water will come out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel. And because they tested the Lord, saying... Is the Lord among us or not? The language that Paul uses is that of the Israelites in Exodus. And the saints in Philippi, unlike many of us, knew their Old Testament well. So when Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, their, their minds immediately went to this text. Because it was the language 
of the Israelites in the wilderness. They grumbled and complained and disputed and quarreled. These words, grumbling and disputing, were directly tied to this Exodus account. And the minds of the believers in Philippi hearkened back to the wandering in the wilderness. Were the Israelites not complaining to Moses about God? Paul didn't want the Philippians to become like the Old Testament Israelites in their complaining about the circumstances that God was sovereignly reigning over. He had placed them there. The obedience to this command to not grumble and to not dispute is evidence that the will of the believer is being sanctified. You want to know one of the marks of a believer? They don't complain. Ultimately, to complain is to not trust God. Therefore, to complain is to demonstrate a lack of faith. Complaining is doubting. We are doubting God when we complain to God about our circumstances. He made you who you are. He put you where you are. He gave you the circumstances that you have. And to complain about such is to doubt God's good pleasure for your good. Don't be like the murmuring Israelites. The unity which Paul pleads for in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. You remember that? When he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Remember that, that unity that Paul was pleading for? It's made more clear in his appeal in chapter 2, verse 14. They lacked unity because there was complaining and disputing among them. And the picture becomes even clearer in chapter 4 when Paul addresses the actual individuals who are disputing. But the reason that he doesn't mention them now in chapter 2 is because this warning was for the entire congregation, just as it is for us today. Stop complaining and demonstrate faith. Sanctification works in us the kind of faith that is authentic. Listen to how the text describes this authentic faith. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Did you hear Paul's reasoning for the command to stop grumbling so that you will prove yourselves? To prove something is to show that it is true. It demonstrates that it's real, that it's authentic. So how do we know that we are the genuine articles? How can we know that our faith is authentic? The evidence of authentic faith is one becomes blameless and innocent and above reproach. This is what Paul was praying for the Philippians at the beginning of his letter. Remember back in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10? And this I pray, that your love would abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. What was Paul praying for them? That they would be sincere and blameless, right? So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Paul is praying this for them. And now he is explaining to them how they might become blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Again, the language Paul uses here is bleeding with the Old Testament overtones of the Exodus. Do you know what God 
You know how God described the generation who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years? Deuteronomy 32.5 says this, they have acted corruptly toward Him, that's God. They are not His children because they are defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Does that have a striking resemblance to our text today or what? Perverse and crooked generation is what the generation who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years was described as in the Old Testament. And then Paul uses that same language again to the Philippians. What Paul was saying is, if complaining, grumbling, disputing is what you're marked by, then you're like the Old Testament Israelites. You're crooked and perverse. and You're not a child of God. This phrase was well known to the believers as a phrase used to describe those who were not genuinely of the faith. They had every reason to be of the faith. They were the people of Israel. Yet, they were not. They were not the children of God. They were perverse and crooked because they complained and disputed. Paul is saying the opposite is true of those who prove their authenticity by not grumbling. Grumbling, listen to me, is a serious sin. The absence of grumbling is the proof of authentic faith. The presence of grumbling is the proof that you are not of God. So be careful. Be careful, dear saints, that you don't become a complainer. Sanctification produces authentic faith. So if our will is conformed to that of Christ and we no longer complain, then to whom are we proving that we are blameless and innocent? Who sees that we have authentic faith? Well, that was exactly Paul's concern. Paul's concern was that the Philippians would be authentic, that they would have real faith, that they wouldn't be these who had every reason to be to belong to Christ, but didn't. And so he warns them not to become grumblers or complainers. Because his concern was the progress of the gospel. Because Paul knew that if the Philippians, the 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 saints in Philippi were grumbling and disputing among one another that there wouldn't be this mark of sanctification that sets them apart from the rest of the world. Listen again to Philippians 2.15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. What's the proof that you're blameless and innocent? Not complaining and grumbling. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Paul wants the world to see authentic faith in the lives of the Philippian saints, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Evangelism is Paul's ultimate intent, that others may know Christ and the power of his resurrection is what Paul was concerned about. Authentic faith is not only the product of sanctification, which we find in the text. But we also find a resolute faith. Yes, it's authentic, but it's also resolute. What do I mean by that? Look with me in verse 16. 
among whom you appear as lights in the world, verse 16, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, that's the end, I will have reason to glory because I I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. The phrase we want to draw attention to now is holding fast the word of life. Holding fast. There's a resoluteness. The word of life is the gospel. And the mark of sanctification in the believer is one who is holding fast the word of life. Now it is easy to misread the scripture here. The phrase holding fast the word of life. Might present a picture in our minds of one desperately trying to hang on to the word of life. Like, if I could just hang on to it. But the actual meaning of the phrase is a picture of one who is firmly holding on to the word of life. It's not a grasping, trying to hang on. It's one who does have a firm hold of the word of life. The Philippian saints were to be above reproach in their city and simultaneously hold out the gospel firmly to those who will hear the good news of Jesus. They are to be lights to the pagans in Philippi by being authentic and resolute in their faith. It was in this proclaiming of the gospel that Paul took such great delight. It's another one of those things that we can't get away from in the book of Philippians. We see Paul's love for the, for the church all over. You, you can't escape that. You can't escape that Paul is filled with this ridiculous joy for Jesus. But we also can't get away from the fact that what Paul is most concerned about is the progress of the gospel and that above all else. And so when we read holding fast the word of life. We have to read it through those lens holding out the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Knowing that the Philippians were carrying out the great task of being gospel light to the city of Philippi, gave Paul, reason, gave Paul much reason to glory. The success of the gospel in Philippi was of direct encouragement to Paul. And Paul uses the imagery of work and of games as a picture to describe his ministry and labors. And he wants the Philippians to adopt the same mindset. holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory. So that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory. Paul says this, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. What is the mark that Paul didn't run in vain or toil in vain? It's the gospel light that the Philippians have become. He knows that he hasn't labored in vain, when he sees that the Philippians are a light to their city, that they're holding out the good news of Jesus Christ to the city of Philippi. He gives us good pictures to run with here. So that I did not run in vain. Gives us a picture of running a race, which Paul uses elsewhere in his writings. It's a good picture for us. Or toil in vain. Gives us a picture of laboring for a result, which Paul, like Christ, uses to describe the labors of the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 7-11 gives us this picture of laboring. 
with the gospel. And Paul says to the church in Corinth, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. That's work though, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Paul's reward, one of Paul's rewards, I should say, was that he saw the fruit of his ministry in Philippi because they were becoming gospel light to the city that so desperately needed Jesus. Paul was delighting in the fact that he had laid the foundation of Christ in Philippi and that they, the saints in Philippi, were building on it. The fact that the church was being established in Philippi gave Paul reason to glory. Which brings us to the results of sanctification. Results of sanctification that we find in the text are threefold. Number one is the progress of the gospel. We've already seen the progress of the gospel as a result of sanctification. Right? We see it in the text that they had become light among a crooked and perverse generation. But let's look at the rest of the text this morning to see the other results of sanctification. The progress of the gospel is right there before us. Look with me in Philippians chapter 2, verse 17. Paul says, But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. What does Paul mean by being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith? This could sound a little confusing. This is a tricky part, I think, in Philippians. But I think the meaning is simple. We just have to kind of see through. What Paul means by being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of the Philippians' faith is this. The picture is one of the, the, excuse me, the Levitical priests, I don't know why I had a hard time saying that, whose service included the offering of a sacrificial animal. And often a drink offering accompanied this sacrifice. So Paul is saying to the Philippians that they are like the priests making the offering to God by giving their lives for the sake of the gospel in Philippi. And Paul is like the drink offering that accompanies that sacrifice. Paul uses the imagery again to describe their service to him in the form of gifts that they sent to sustain him in his ministry in Philippians chapter 4. So he, he, he's using this imagery of the priests making sacrifices for God in the same sense that their labors with the gospel is a sacrifice to God. But I have received everything in full, he says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And so their labors with Paul in the gospel, he viewed as a sacrifice that's pleasing to God. This fellowship that Paul has with the Philippians is very, very strong. And so when he sees that they are giving of themselves, that they are sacrificing their very lives, that they are suffering for the sake of the gospel, he says, I'm like the drink offering, drink offering alongside the sacrifice that you've made to God with your lives. 
This language is, again, it's all over the book of Philippians. He calls it the fellowship of suffering in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. And if we go back to chapter 1, verse 29, Paul reminds them that they're not only to believe in God, but also to suffer for his sake. So this suffering, this giving your lives as a sacrifice to God is what Paul shares with the Philippians. It's a source of great delight for him. Remember back in Philippians chapter 1 when he says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. Always offering prayer, what? With joy. I pray with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. What did Paul have such great joy about? That they labored with him in the gospel, that they were partners, that they participated with him, that they suffered with him, that they were a part of the fellowship of suffering that Paul knew so well. Paul rejoices in God for the partnership in the gospel. It was proof of their sanctification. Paul was willing to be poured out, spent for the gospel, and he rejoiced in this. Paul shared his joy with the saints and requested that they share their joy in suffering with him. So the results of sanctification are this. One, the progress of the gospel. But two, the joy of the saints. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. This joy shared by those who have labored and suffered for the gospel produced a unity. Remember what we talked about last week? One of the marks of a church that, that is evidence that they're, they're unified is that they're all behind the progress of the gospel, that they're about the progress of the gospel. The progress of the gospel unites. It has definitely united Paul and the Philippians because they both were suffering for the progress of the gospel. And they both took great joy in knowing that they were suffering for the sake of the gospel. And that joy that they had together in suffering united them. A partnership that we alluded to last week. Their joy had nothing to do with their circumstances. As we continue to push through Philippians, it's going to become crystal clear that Paul was not governed by circumstances, that he was content in Christ. Their joy had nothing to do with circumstances, but everything to do with their place in Christ Jesus. Their joy was steeped in knowing that their believing and their suffering has both Paul and the Philippians looking forward to the day of Christ when every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what Paul saw. That's why he breaks out into worship in chapter 2. Because he's writing in the middle of this and he sees the end. That yes, Christ did condescend. And yes, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was crucified. But then he sees the exaltation of Christ, that God the Father exalts Christ and gives him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Paul erupts into worship in the middle of this love letter to the Philippians. Brothers and sisters, do you share this joy with one another? Do you have this unity, this joyous relationship that Paul shares with the church in Philippi? Do you long to rejoice with other saints as you co-labor with the gospel in your community? I want to 
insert a piece of application here. I want to challenge every one of us, whether you are fighting for joy or not. Maybe you are filled up with the joy of the Lord. And if so, praise be to God. But if you're fighting for joy, if there's a struggle for joy in your life, then let me give you a challenge. I challenge every family in the church to pair with another couple or individual for the progress of the gospel in your community. So here's what I'm saying. Find another family in this church, preferably today, not right now, but sometime today. Pair with another family. So go to them and say, we want to join with you. We want to we unite with you in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in our community. And you can work out the details of what that looks like. If you just say it and nothing ever happens, then shame on us. But join with another couple or individual for the progress of the gospel in your community. So they've got to live close by you. So find a family that lives or individual that lives close by and unite with them for the progress of the gospel. And I guarantee that if you faithfully proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ together in your community, I guarantee, I'm holding God's word accountable to this, that you'll have a new joy that you have not experienced in quite some time. And let me just go ahead and say that the Smiths have Dan Reisman. All right? The rest of you can shoot me an email and let me know with whom you are pairing with this week. All right? So feel free to shoot me an email and say, hey, the Lancasters are pairing with fill in the blank. All right? I didn't pick for y'all. I just picked for us. But the last thing that I want you to see is this. The results of sanctification are, yes, the progress of the gospel and the joy of the saints, but also the glory of God. And you're thinking, we've run out of text, Brian. How are you going to squeeze this one in? It's not a stretch to say that all of this joy stemming from Paul's contemplations on the sanctification and suffering of the saints in Philippi for the progress of the gospel caused him to fix his eyes on Jesus. He was zeroed in. All you have to do is go back to Philippians 2, 5-11. He's zeroed in on Christ. And it is this long list of imperatives that causes Paul to dive into worship of Christ. Which concludes with the phrase, to the glory of God the Father. Everything that we just looked at today, Philippians 2, 12-18, just erupts from the worship that Paul just had in Philippians 2.11. When he says, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We are to work out our salvation in order to be authentic and resolute in our faith for the progress of the gospel, for the joy of the saints, and for the glory of God. Let's pray together. All glory is yours, God. Glory be to you, our God and Father, forever and ever. Father, we pray this morning that we would see you as the author of sanctification and that we would unite with you in consecrating ourselves to you, Father. Father, I pray that you would work in us though those real marks of sanctification, that our faith would be authentic, that we would not doubt, that we would not be complainers, but that we would trust in our sovereign God, that our faith would be real.
and resolute. That we would remain faithful until the day of Christ Jesus. And Father, we pray that we would taste, that we would taste the sweet results of sanctification, not just in our lives as individuals, but as a church. That we would see the progress of the gospel. Oh God, would you save souls as a result of the sanctification of your saints. And Father, that we would enjoy the sweet joy that saints enjoy together when they participate in the progress of the gospel with one another. And Father, we pray that we would see the glory of God among us in the sanctification of your saints. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.